Let's take our Bibles and <clears throat> turn to the commission in Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to begin to <clears throat> move into the commission to really place ourselves as learners to learn what it means in the context of which it was given. And we're going to be reading verses 16, 17, and 18. And our focus for both this Lord's Day and Lord willing next Lord's Day is centered around the word authority. I do think that it is a mistake when preachers preach the commission, verses 18, 19, and 20, and they fail to develop the authority behind the commission. It's the authority behind the commission that motivates us to actually carry out the commission, to see God's eternal purpose worked out through the means of this commission. And so we want to spend some time looking at that especially in light of our present generations that know very, very little about authority and how to respond to authority. That concept really is a missing concept today. So let's read Matthew 28, verses 16 through 18. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. As I mentioned in introducing our reading. This commission is important because it is the means (coughs) by which God's eternal purpose is to be fulfilled in every generation. Ephesians 1 really gives to us the fullness of that eternal purpose. It's mentioned in bits and pieces in the other Pauline epistles, but it's that eternal purpose and it's worked out in the church And then in the church is worked out outside the church through the means of this commission. Matthew is really utilizing this commission as the summarization of all the previous writing that he has given. We'll look at it later, but the book begins with the generations. The word generation is the word genesis. And the word Genesis reminds us of what book? Genesis. Genesis. That wasn't a trick question. And here we have at the end, at the beginning of Matthew, the Genesis, and at the end of Matthew you have, Lo, I am with you always, even to to the end. So what we have is something occurring in that Genesis and then something continually in an everlasting dominion in which Christ is King and Lord. It's really an amazing summarization of what 
Matthew is aiming for. Matthew centers his book around five primary discourses. Those discourses are given to, ultimately, the disciples and the understanding of those discourses. So when we read Matthew, we should be reading Matthew as a disciple. What is a disciple? It is a learner follower. We don't come to Christ merely as a learner. If we do that, we will not be blessed because James says it's not the hearer of the word that is blessed, but the the doer of the word. That person is blessed. If we come to Christ, come to him merely as a follower and not a learner, then what we end up doing is following the imaginations of our own mind because we don't know Christ and we don't know his ways. Both of those have to go together. We are learner followers or we are disciples. And this is exactly what the commission commands the church to do. The purpose, God's eternal purpose, worked out through this commission, if it is worked out according to God's will, makes disciples. The gospel makes disciples. And a disciple manifests himself by not only confessing to others, but by being baptized, by being a member of a local New Testament assembly, and being taught to observe. Not merely taught, but taught to observe all things that Christ has commanded. This is the cycle, and this is the commission. We looked at the timing of the commission. The commission occurred sometime after the first eight days of his appearance and before the 40th day of his appearance. And it occurred in what region? It occurred in Galilee. And so it even says, verse 16, the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee. And this commission was given to the eleven apostles. The context is very clear about that, but the rest of the New Testament is also equally clear that the apostles delivered to the churches the authority of this commission. So they received the commission and the authority of the commission. The apostles delivered the commission and its authority to local New Testament churches throughout all the world, and therefore the church has the authority of this commission, and the commission to carry out in their local geographical region. And so God's eternal purpose can be fulfilled. Now when we look at this, we look at it first of all from its context, and then second of all, looking at its authority. What is the context that is going on here? Well, the eleven disciples were instructed to proceed to Galilee. You'll notice, if you go back to Matthew chapter 26, and here we are in the upper room, and you'll notice in chapter 26 in verse 32, Jesus tells them, He says, After I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So He mentions it there in the upper room prior to His death, burial, and resurrection. 
you go back to Matthew chapter 28 and you look at verse 7, here we have the angels telling the ladies, go quickly, tell his disciples that he has been risen from the dead and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, behold, I have told you. And then again, then Jesus meets up, verse 10 of Matthew 28, and he said to them, Do not be afraid. Go, take word to my brethren to leave for what? To leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. So three times in the book of Matthew, we have the instruction that Jesus kept telling them that he's going to meet them where? In the region of Galilee. Now you'll notice in Matthew 28, verse 16, that they do proceed to Galilee, and they proceed to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Now, we don't have in those three instructions any command about a designated mountain. But mountains are very, very important to Matthew. In fact, if I remember correctly, I didn't write down the number, I think at least ten times Matthew mentions a mountain and Jesus laboring or teaching from that mountain. But this word mountain in the Greek, and you'll see it here in our English translation, is not to a mountain that Jesus had designated, it's to the mountain that Jesus had designated. And if you do a search on that article associated with that word mountain, what you'll find is that the mountain refers to several instances in the book of Matthew, such as the Sermon on the, the, sermon on the Mount. So you have that. Then in Matthew 14, you have Jesus going up to the mountain, to pray. And there he prayed alone. And of course, you know, the disciples were sent onto the Sea of Galilee, and there they met a storm. In Matthew 15, it refers to the mountain when Jesus went up to that mountain, and the multitudes came to him, and he healed them. So you have teaching on the mountain. And you have praying alone on the mountain. <clears throat> you have healing on the mountain. And what do you have in Matthew 28, verse 16? You have the commission given on the mountain that Jesus designated. So the question is, <clears throat> is the, all these mountains the same mountain? And we can't be definitive about that. However, I do think it is highly probable that we are talking about the same mountain region, whether it be the Sermon on the Mount, or whether it be Him praying alone, or the healing of the multitudes, or the giving of the commission. And of course, who else in the Bible received things on the mountain? Moses did. What other prophet went to the mountain? 
Elijah went to the mountain. And you know on the Mount of Transfiguration what two men showed up. Moses and Elijah. The presence of a mountain indicates the place where God gives revelation. Now, is that the reason why Jesus went to mountains? I don't know. Was he trying to show them that he was the new Moses, the one that was predicted by Moses, the prophet that was to come? I think that's highly likely, but we don't have a definitive statement that says that. Here he is on the mountain. The eleven proceed to that mountain. And Jesus does appear, verse 17, to them. Now, does this surprise you? Some of them, they worshipped, and some of them, what? Doubted. Doubted. Does that surprise you? Well, the word worship is used more times in Matthew than any of the other four books of the Gospel. It's mentioned in Matthew chapter 2 three times. Matthew chapter 4, you remember Satan asked Jesus to bow down and do what? To worship Him. Matthew chapter 8, 9, 14, 15, 18, 20, and here in Matthew chapter 28. What is worship? Huge question, right? In fact, in the last decade or so, we had what the evangelicals called the worship wars. What is biblical worship? Biblical worship is a position of one's heart. It is a bowing down of one's spirit. It's manifested bodily. Is that correct? In other words, a person would bow down, literally get on their knees, bow down before Jesus Christ. Would that be an act of worship? The answer to that is what? Yes. But folks, we do know that people can bow down and not worship. <coughs> worship is a position of the heart. And when our heart bows down, we are acknowledging another one's authority and position. When these bowed down, when they worshipped, when they saw Him and worshipped Him, they were acknowledging not only His status, He's resurrected from the dead, amen? But they were acknowledging His authority. And folks, what that lets us know is this, that worship, contrary to what people believe today is not merely an activity. It's not you're worshiping if you're singing. It's not that you're worshiping if you're praying. It's not that you're worshiping if you're giving. Could you be worshiping when you're singing? Could you be worshiping when you're praying? Could you be worshiping in your giving? Yes. 
But it's not like, okay, we're going to worship now by having some praise music, and then when we have the sermon, we're not going to worship anymore. No, we're to have our hearts bowed down when we meet together, whether we're singing or giving or praying or hearing. This is the position of a disciple. His heart is bowed down. And folks, you know that it is written in the prophet Isaiah that there is coming a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. The one with all authority. All mankind, saved or lost, dead or alive, will be raised and they will bow down before Him, either voluntarily or forcefully. Because He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one with all authority. Now, here's men who when they saw Jesus, we're looking at the setting here, when they saw Jesus, they worshipped. But then some of them doubted. Our translation says some of them were doubtful. Does that mean that some of those 11 were unbelievers. What do you think? No, those 11 men were what? They were believers. In fact, the only other time this Greek term that's translated doubtful in our translation is used is when Peter was walking on the water. Jesus told him to come He gets out of the boat, he's walking on the water, but then his eye glances, it gets distracted by the winds and the waves, and he begins to sink, and he cries out, Lord, save me, and Jesus looks at him and says, why did you doubt? Now, was Peter an unbeliever? No. Can believers doubt? (laughs) The answer to that is yes. This is not referring to the fact that some of the 11 are unbelievers. In fact, when you read this, you you could, I think with some justification, walk away and think that Matthew was one of the doubtful because when he talks about the 11, it says when they saw him. He didn't say when we saw him. It says when they saw him, some they worshipped, but some were what? Some were doubtful. This is probably referring to their hesitation to worship. Their hesitation to bow their knee to worship. And the reason why I say that is because of the contrast. When they saw him, they worshiped. But some of them were doubtful. Meaning there was a hesitation to, as it were, fall on their knees or fall on their faces before Him who appeared. Now the answer, the question now is, if that's the case, why were they doubtful? Because the majority of them were not doubtful. 
And I think the answer to that is given to us in verse 18. Do you see the answer there? It says, and Jesus came up. Did everybody see that? So evidently, and we're doing some conjecture here, but evidently what happened is they went to the mount. That was designated. They're there on the mount. Jesus appears, but he doesn't appear right in front of them. He actually appears some distance away. The majority of the 11, like Peter when he was on the boat, and he brought in all those fishes, and he says, that's the Lord, and he just jumps in and leaves John to pull in all those fish. Evidently, Jesus is some distance away that would have caused some hesitancy on some of the 11 to immediately fall down and worship him. In other words, they hesitated because they weren't sure at that point. But when Jesus came up to them, my guess is, is that they all ended up worshiping. Now the Bible doesn't say that, does it? But my guess is that that is what happened. So here they are, they're on that mountain. <clears throat> they're at the mountain that was so designated, all 11 of them. Jesus appears, but he appears some distance away. The majority of them recognized him. Some were hesitant. They weren't sure that it really was him. But Jesus came up to them. And when he came up to them, then he gave them this commission. Everybody see this scenario here. And folks, I don't think that's unlikely. I think you would do the same thing. It would be like me telling you I'm going to meet you at some place and I don't just appear right in front of you, but maybe I'm coming from a block away and you're not quite sure it's me or not. So you don't want to say, hey, over here, over here. But as I got closer, you would what? You would say, now that's pastor. I think it's something similar to that is going on here with these men. It's not, again, that they were unbelievers or that they were doubting that Jesus rose from the grave. They were just doubting, they were hesitant to bow down and worship until they fully recognized him in his appearance. So here they are before him. Jesus is now in their presence, verse 18. And he comes up and he speaks to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew persistently <clears throat> sets before us as the disciples of Christ the written record of Jesus' authority. We read in the narrative for our scripture reading. Matthew chapter 8. Did he have authority over leprosy? Yes. Did he have authority over sickness? Did he have authority to tell people what to do? And after the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, says he doesn't speak like everybody else. He speaks as one having authority. 
Matthew keeps bringing to our minds this written record of his authority, which means that as disciples reading the narratives between the discourses, it is critical that we grow in our understanding of Jesus' authority over us and Jesus' authority over the church. Because we may ask, I hope not here, but we might do this here. They're certainly doing it out there. We may ask what the Pharisees asked Jesus. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to cleanse the temple? Who gave you the authority to heal the sick? Do you hear that question? This was after three years of ministry. And in some cases, emptying whole towns of illness. They don't know by what authority, and they don't know who gave the authority to Jesus to do this. It's amazing. Or people might be like Pharaoh. Who is this Christ that I should obey his voice? Do you think that question's ever asked out there in people's hearts? Because every time you give the gospel to somebody, you are, if you're giving the gospel properly, you are demanding them to recognize the authority of Christ to tell them not only what to do, but how to be delivered from their sins. Folks, really, <clears throat> this is the definitive obstacle with fallen men and women. A refusal to bow the knee to the authority of Jesus Christ. And sad to say, this is true in many of our churches. <coughs> there is a refusal to hear the plain teaching of the Bible and to do it and to incorporate it in our lives. The world definitely has this question. And in many cases, those within the professing church of Jesus Christ have the, second, have the same question. If I come to you and speak to you with all authority and tell you to do something, what is your initial response? Folks, what is our initial response to authority? It is, who are you? Now, we don't think that way if the person is telling us to do something that we're predisposed to do. It's when the person tells us something we're not predisposed to do. That feeling that rises up 
when someone looks at you and says, obey me, is your sin nature. You will not have that in the new heaven and new earth. Hallelujah. But even as a believer, you have that sinful nature abiding in your flesh. When someone presses their authority, we instinctively react internally and in some cases expressing our disapproval with our body. Now why is that? Well, it is our sinful nature. But folks, people believe this, and you believe this, to some measure and to some degree, that you are the final arbitrator of truth in your life. You sit there and you listen to the Bible, or you read the Bible, and we all do this. You evaluate, how does this impact me? Do I want to do this? Is this going to cost me something? Is this going to humble me? What are people going to think about me if I do do this? What will I lose if I do this? We all are thinking that way. Yes, even you. We rarely, rarely think that someone outside of ourselves has the ultimate right to tell us what to do. Rarely. Now, if I was going to give you a quiz, let me give you a quiz. You ready? This is a quiz. Should children obey their parents? We all go. If I was to go around and ask the children, do you like that? <laughs> Does the Bible say that we're to obey government? Yes or no? Yes. The one with all authority said obey your parents. The one with all authority said, obey the government. Then why did many professing Christians riot on January the 6th? The scripture says to obey your leaders in the church and submit to them. Is that in our Bible? How do you feel about that? 
Do you feel like the man in my previous pastorate who said, I'll never come to your church, and the church member asked them why, and they said, because I don't want anybody telling me what to do. At least he was honest. But folks, we have many people sitting in churches who that's that, that is their demeanor. Nobody's going to tell me what to do, and I'm the final arbitrator on what's true or not. And many people think that they get away with it if they just don't learn what's true. It's like ignorance is bliss. If I'm ignorant of what Jesus said, then I don't have to do it. So why come to learn? And this happens in our life. When our children are born, they are born sinful. They are rebellious. They are resistant. But when they're babies, under good scriptural parents, you can bring that child under your authority. Right, parents? I mean, they're small. You could actually put them underneath your arm and carry them around. But then children grow up bodily. And what happens in their life, we hope it doesn't, but is by both nature and choice, they grow to learn to suspect their parents, to doubt their parents, and to critique their parents' authority. And folks, do I need to remind us that that is the spirit of the age? A child will say internally first, I'm not sure that my parents are really for me. They begin to doubt whether the parents' commands to them or request to them is really something that they ought to do. And then they sit around and say, well, you know, if I was the parent, I wouldn't do that because I don't think this is what's right for me. And eventually the child will begin to exert their own lordship over authority. They will begin to assess authority in their own eyes through their own maturity. And parents, you know, I've been there, you've been there. You know that you have grown, you have children, you get married, you have children, and then I've had multitudes of people tell me this, and then they find out their parents aren't so dumb. Well, they never were that dumb. The problem isn't with the parent. The problem is you. The problem is me. The problem is we're rebellious. In contrast to what I just described to you, a believer should be growing in their trust in the Lord to submit and yield to authority. You ought to be more willing to submit and yield to authority if you've been saved 10 years than when you first got saved. (coughs) 
We have a problem with authority. Every one of us. And folks, this is why it's important for Jesus to show He has authority. And it's important for Jesus to say to us, I have all of it. If He has all authority, then that means, as a parent, your authority is delegated. Everybody see that? My authority as a pastor is delegated. The government's authority is delegated. They don't get to express authority according to their whims. And if they don't, then they will answer to the one who has all authority in the future. Now, we've lost an understanding of authority. My generation was probably one of the last to have a vestige of what authority really looks like. And one of the reasons that is, is because prior to my generation, there was a little thing called the draft. They had a military draft. Do you know what happens when you join the military? The very first thing that they have to teach those recruits at boot camp is who's in authority. And it's not them. If that one in authority tells you to go run for three miles, you what? You do it. You don't say, I don't feel like it. Because you will be made to feel like it. If he says, go dig a ditch over there, you don't say, I don't think a ditch should be over there. You what? You do it. And folks, my parental generation, the parents that I was raised under, that's how they parented. When my mother told me to do something, she expected me to do it. And the little phrase that she used, which I haven't heard in decades, is, you're to do it and not backtalk me. We've lost that sense of authority. And folks, we have that authority illustrated for us in our Bible. When we're looking at the relationship that we have as disciples with authority, the one who has how much authority? All authority. We have it illustrated in our Bibles how we are to respond. And it's in Matthew 8, and I want us to turn back to that chapter. 
<clears throat> At this point, you should already be knowing where I'm going. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 8, <clears throat> verses 5 through 10. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be what? Will be healed. Here's the reason he said it. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he what? And to another, come, and he what? Comes. And to my slave, do this, and he what? He does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. What was unusual is that this man was a Gentile. Who should have recognized Jesus' authority? The Jews. The satyrian tells us that he was a man under authority. Now, I'm going to pause here and tell you that I'm going to bring out points here that are here in this context, but I'm not giving you all the fullness of what evangelical obedience looks like, like how to handle it if they tell you to do something that's unscriptural. I'm not going to go into any of that. We're just looking at authority and how we're to respond to authority. What should be our spirit as a learner follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, the centurion, he was a military Gentile, Roman soldier. He is a man, verse 9, under authority. So what does that mean? That means when the one who's above him tells him to go, he... And when the one above him tells him to come, he... And when the one above him tells him to do something, he... He does it. Everybody see that? He's under authority. And we're under authority. Not only is the centurion under authority... But the centurion has people under his authority. So, he says, verse 9, I'm a man under authority, and I have soldiers under me. I have soldiers under my authority. And when I say to this one, go, he goes, and another come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. So folks, when we look at fundamentally authority, 
What can we pull out of this for our edification and challenge? And folks, I say challenge because I've been living with this word all authority for about two and a half weeks. And I have been strictly applying it to myself. And for two hours last night, I spent applying this message to myself and to my pilgrimage. And if you leave here this morning and you just say to yourself, that's nice, and walk out with no conviction and no challenge, you've missed it. Because you're not perfect. Not one of us. We are a learner follower. Number one, a person under authority must hear and understand the command. Now that's not explicitly stated here in this passage, but if the centurion says go, he has to know what go means, right? If he says come, he has to know what come means. And if he says do this, he has to know what do this means. So, for us to be under authority, we have to hear and understand what the authority is commanding. This is the position of a learner. The position of a follower is seen in the fact that if the hearing and understanding says go, you go. That's obeying. If it says come, you come. And that's obeying. He says, do this, you do it. That's obeying. That's following. And folks, this involves our heart. Many, many, many parents think that they have pretty good, obedient children, but their hearts are not obedient. And years and years ago, even here in this church, I had a, a prominent person in our youth group say to me that everyone in that youth group was just waiting to get old enough to get out from under this church and to leave it. Well, were they obedient? No. Outwardly? Yes. Obedient? No. Because it involves your heart. It involves the disposition of your heart. Are we to grow with that? Yeah. Yes or no? Yes. It's not, it's not, I'm totally obedient or I'm totally a failure. We're a disciple. <clears throat> this is what I'm doing. I'm teaching so that you can learn what authority is and what it looks like. It involves your heart. It involves your hand. That is your deeds. And it involves your, foot, your feet. That's your walk. Now folks, in verse 9... If the one who has authority says, go, and he goes, and he says, come, and he comes, and he says to his slave or servant, do this, and he does it, 
then what that means is, is that to be a disciple rightly related to the one who has all authority, it means that we are not to question what he says. We're not to critique what he says. We're not to do the Facebook like, dislike. We're not to do the kudos, the non-kudos. We're not to sit around and evaluate how much impact this has in my life. We're not to sit back and give reasons why we can't do it. We're not to sit back and evaluate the tone or the method of an authority. Well, I don't like the way he said it. If I would have said that to my parents, I don't like the way you said it, they probably would have said it in more ways I didn't like. The question isn't the parental or the authority's tone or method. It's our, is what they're telling you to do scriptural and within the framework of something that you should be doing. Now when I say scriptural, I don't mean that they have to have a verse. If, if your parents say clean your room, you're not going to find a verse for that. Should you do it? Yes or no? Yes. yes. <coughs> You're not to sit around and say, is there a better way to do this that my authorities told me to do? And folks, all of those things that I just mentioned there are all things our culture and our educational system drives into its children from first grade. It's not about you. It's not about your feelings. It's not whether you like it or dislike it. It's whether you're told to do it. Now I'm just going to tell you, and for some of you won't believe this, if you would do this, you would be happier. <laughs> you really would be happier. Sin is a burden. Rebellion is a burden. And the fascinating thing here with this centurion <coughs> is that what the centurion is saying to the Lord is, you have all authority. And you have authority over my servant that is paralyzed. You can tell the disease that's causing the paralyzation to go 
And it will what? It will go. It won't sit there and say, well, maybe I'll do it. And I love what he does here, verse 13. Jesus just looks at the centurion and says, what? Go. And he just said, if I tell people to go, they what? They go. Jesus tells the centurion, go. What do you think he did? He left. And guess what you think the disease did? It immediately left. No questions asked. No critique. No objection. Gone. Same thing happened. Look at verse 32 of Matthew 8. I love this. So the demons are like, I know you're going to cast us out and don't torment us and let us go into the swine. Verse 32, he said to them, go. And what happened? All those demons went. All at the same time. No question. No objection. Gone. Right into the swine. And Jesus ties this centurion's understanding of his authority to his faith. He says, verse 10, Jesus marveled and said to those who are following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith. Everybody see that? Faith and the recognizing of His authority go hand in hand. You can't have a saving faith unless you believe Jesus can really save you. That He can really deliver you from your sins. That He really can forgive you. You have to recognize His authority. And since that's the case, what it means is, is that when our faith matures, it will involve a maturing of our understanding of His authority over our lives and over the life of a church. A church that is maturing will recognize the authority of Jesus' Word. And not just recognize it, but they will want to learn about it and they will want to do it. They're not just coming here to be spectators. To have their ears tickled. To go away and live their lives the same way. That Roman centurion, a Gentile, was greatly persuaded that Jesus of Nazareth possessed authority over his slave's paralyzing disability and its associated torture. Do you realize he has all authority over your pain? A word from him and your pain's gone. And that this centurion understood both what an authoritative word meant 
And he also understood what it meant to respond to authority. Now brethren, that's how we got to approach our Bibles. When you have devotions, you're not just reading your Bible. You're reading your Bible to hear it, understand it, to do it. That one with all authority, he's the one who tells us what a blessed, God-favored man looks like in the Sermon on the Mount. That's with all authority. It's without question. This is what a God-favored man looks like. And he's the one at the end of that sermon who said, if you would build your house upon the rock, upon what I just taught you, the winds would come and the waves would come and your house would what? And they said, whoa, this man teaches like someone with authority. And folks, I think it goes without saying that God has authority. <laughs> He's the Creator. And because Christ has all authority, He has the authority to save you from sin and death. Folks, sin is not greater than Him. I've had people tell me, there's no way, no way. This sin's got me. I'm enslaved. Are you saying your sin is higher and greater than Jesus Christ? He has all authority, doesn't He? He can rebuke it. The one who has all authority says, He that comes to me. Did you hear this? He that comes to me, I will what? That's an authority speaking. That's not you or me. That's Him. He has all authority. He has been exalted to the right hand of God Far above, not just above, far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, and every name that is named, now and in the future, because God the Father has put all things in subjection under His feet. That includes you and me. So folks, we, we need to evaluate what Jesus means when He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And we need to evaluate what that is to look like in our lives. Whether we're children, whether we're adults, what does that look like? And folks, we ought to have a spirit of if they say go, we go. If they say come, we come. And if they say do this, we what? We do it. That is a mature disciple.
Let's pray.